Good afternoon, everyone from the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute, and welcome to lecture number seven in our ME 101 series. Uh, today, we'll be tackling the theme of women and youth, a force for change. And with us, our esteemed speaker, Dr. Hannah Amoibet, who is a research fellow at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, or KF Chris. And uh, I'd like to say a few words about the topic before I hand it over to Dr. Hannah. Um, just recently, in fact, just two days ago, we had the Saudi-Singapore Business Forum here in Singapore, and the Saudi Minister of Commerce, Dr. Uh, Majid Al-Kasabi, remarked during his presentation, during his remarks, that you know, some, he gave some in, interesting figures, uh, one of which was that 36% of the labor force in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi national workforce, is 36% of it constitutes women. And that exceeds the Vision 2030 target of 30%. In addition, 45% of the SMEs in the kingdom are owned by women. And on, on, on the aspect of youth, you know, 63% of the national population are under the age of 30. So we see that there is a huge youth segment of the population. Uh, so, of course, we, want, we would like to ask our speaker later on during the Q&A segment, uh, what are the policies that are driving um, you know, the aspirations of the youth? What are the gender policies in the kingdom? And also trying to understand through her presentation, the youth vouch and the coming challenges ahead for the kingdom. So the lecture will discuss shifting patterns also on uh, higher education choices of young people in the kingdom under Vision 2030 and how these shifts influence and are influenced by the new labour market trends in the kingdom. Um, before I head it over again, I would like to uh, say a bit more about her profile. Uh, I mentioned that she's a research fellow at the King Faisal Centre for Research and Islamic Studies. She's also a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and her research explores the influence of social dynamics on attitudes towards work, education, and career choices, including youth transitions in the GCC. Her, her research emphasis is on vocational education in Saudi Arabia, and she was awarded her PhD from UCL's Institute of Education, where her thesis explored the role of structure and agency in young people's choices in Saudi Arabia. She has worked with several private, public, and non and non-profit entities managing multi-stakeholder research projects related to youth, career entrepreneurship, and education. And she has over 15 years of experience consulting for different academic institutes, businesses, think tanks, and consultancies such as Chatham House, SOAS, UCL Consultants, and various entities within the Middle East. We will have a presentation first, followed by the Q&A segment. So during the segment of uh, the Q&A, we'd like to invite uh, our audience to put in your questions in the chat box, which I can then read out to our speaker for today. So without further ado, allow me to warmly welcome Dr. Hannah Amoyabet, and let me pass the floor to you.
Thank you so much, Clemens. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here. I am. Um, um, so it's a pleasure to be here this, um, I think it's evening for you, this morning for me. Um, I am really looking forward to discussing um, this topic. And um, I, I wanted to start with kind of this image, which was the image that was used for the 93rd uh, Saudi National Day just a couple of days ago. Um, and the slogan for this year was, we dream and we achieve, uh, which is quite inspirational. Uh, the image itself, it places um, a man and a woman at the center. And then most of those images are inspired by different um, projects that are ongoing, a lot of the mega projects that are ongoing within the kingdom. Uh, so it's Dar'iya uh, Gates, Sindala, Al-Ula, The Line, Asuda, uh, sports Boulevard and more. Uh, so it really is kind of bringing together a lot of the new projects and the new exciting things that are happening as, you know, the backdrop and the the kind of the slogan for the Saudi National Day. Um, and looking forward, right? We, we achieve, uh, we dream and we achieve. So today what I'd like to do, uh, first of all, I wanted to share this with you because what I did before starting this, putting together the slides was I typed into chat GPT, um, to start a presentation on youth and women in Saudi Arabia. And this is the title that it generated for me, Empowering Saudi Women and Youth, Unleashing Potential, which was very, very close to the title that we had put uh, for this presentation. So ChatGPT kind of knows what's going on. I used some of the recommendations that definitely started getting my, um, my thoughts together. Uh, it really was heavily focused on looking at demographics and demographic changes, uh, but also it did bring in um, Vision 2030 and some of the developments as part of the bullet points. But so the title is a chat GPT one, but actually, oh yes, and their subtitle was A Journey of Progress and Transformation. So it was very close. Um, however, these the rest of the outline is my outline. Um, so I had to modify it. I didn't really know what I wanted to say. So I'm going to do a really quick overview of Saudi and Vision 2030 and talk about the importance of Saudi women and youth within that context. Um, and then what the purpose of this presentation is. Uh, and then I'd like to talk about opportunity structures, which is theory I borrow from Ken Roberts and thinking about people's transitions from education to work uh, and look more closely at, at employment, education and family transitions and opportunity structures. Um, and then I'd like to look at kind of how push and pull factors, which are part of that theory, are uh, reshaping opportunity uh, within the kingdom and finally open up to discussion. So just some key demographics. Um, the total population in Saudi, there was just a new uh, census that was conducted um, in 2022. The stats were released and there's been kind of a, a, you know, a slow release of some of the data and the details of it. Uh, but it was re, you know, kind of calibrated a lot of the stats that we had before. Um, some of them are, are a little bit different, but the total population is 32.2 million. 58.4% um, of that population is Saudi and 41.6% are expatriates. And I think this is a very important point to make. It's different from other Gulf states where you have a larger proportion being expatriates, but it also still is a significant proportion of the population. Um, the... Uh, 63% of the population is under age 30. So it's a very young population. Um, and the average age of Saudis is 25 years old. Um, it has increased 8.2 million since 2010. So there's been a massive growth. And if you think back to even kind of earlier uh, days of Saudi development in the 60s, for instance, um, 
the population was closer to 6 million. So it's really grown a lot over the past 50, 60 years. Uh, and when you think about the progress of Saudi Arabia, I really think that you need to contextualize it within that, how many people actually live there, how big it is. So it's um, nine times the size of the United Kingdom uh, in area. So it's quite a large country. Um, and here what I have is actually um, the this heat map is GDP per capita. So it also has quite high GDP per capita. It's in the same color as some of these other leading countries uh, in the world, but it's around 25,000. Uh, GDP per capita is around $25,000. Um, in comparison, it's 80,000 in the United States. In Singapore, it's 91. But in somewhere like Egypt, it's 3,000 or India, it's 2.6. So just to kind of contextualize it. And in 2016, a lot of changes started happening in Saudi. So for a long time, it was kind of business as usual status quo. And things changed significantly after 2016. In April, uh, there was this launch of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030. It really did spark a massive social, economic and cultural shift within the kingdom. So there, it's a, a very ambitious plan. Uh, there's, you know, kind of three main um, strategic uh, or three main kind of pillars to it, an ambitious nation, a thriving economy and a vibrant society. And then you have overarching objectives followed by branch objectives and then 96 strategic objectives. And it is um, run by all of the different government agencies and ministries within the kingdom. So that everybody is responsible for different parts of achieving key performance indicators in these um, in these three areas uh, through what they call vision realization programs. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those uh, throughout this uh, presentation. So just a really big, like quick overview from 2016 until 2023. These are some of the key changes and key developments that have happened since launching Vision 2030. You have a widespread use of e-government. There was e-government used quite a bit in the past, but now you have courts and conciliation platforms online. Um, citizen services are all on your phone, renewing your passport, um, your driver's license, paying fees and fines, all of it is online. Um, you have a lot of central employment portals as well, where you can look and see what's available and um, uh, apply for jobs online. In terms of kind of the environment, you have different initiatives, many different initiatives, some of them involve planting many trees, others are more related to reusing water resources, um, kind of launching specialized bodies within the different ministries to manage uh, resources differently. Um, and then you also have a transformation in the charity sector, which I will touch on a little bit as well in this presentation. So 120% growth in the number of nonprofit organizations that work in the country um, in different areas, such as housing, education, sports, et cetera. Uh, you also have a national volunteering platform, which has really increased the number of volunteers and people engaging in different social causes within the kingdom. Uh, you have a transformation of the welfare, welfare system. Uh, there's been a lot of reforms in that area, which has translated into different types of training and onboarding and different opportunity structures for different people, which we'll talk about more as well. And labor market accessibility and diversity. There's been a lot of changes within the labor market. Women, uh, Participating in the labor market at an unprecedented rate is one of them, but there are other uh, things that have happened in that space as well. 
So the purpose of this presentation really is to think about kind of those structural changes that have resulted from implementing Vision 2030 and what this means for the agency and choice of youth and women in the kingdom. So I think that one, there's so many different ways to look at this. And for me, I usually do think about that kind of relationship between choice and, and agency and the structures that might limit or, or give space for that to happen. And so this is how I'm going to frame the discussion of young people and women's roles within the kingdom and the, their journeys. So opportunity structures, basically, the theory goes that we're thinking about the interrelationships between family origins, education, labor market processes, and employers' recruitment policies. And those kind of formulate uh, the, the opportunities that people have. Uh, it also places gender, ethnicity, and other factors to the web of determinants. And there are push and pull forces together that create career routes or transition routes, which govern young people's progress. So the main push is usually family background, gender, and things like that. And then those main pull uh, forces are the ones that come from the labor market and from employers and whatever other state provisions there might be. Before I go into kind of employment work and, um, and family structure and how those are shaping people's uh, transitions, I just want to highlight a few other legal changes that really impacted family work and education. Uh, so the personal status law was probably what most people were talking about, the guardianship law, one of the biggest changes that happened, especially for women in the kingdom. Uh, basically, what happened is women became responsible for issuing their own uh, passports, their own identity cards, and they stopped being uh, dependents of male guardians. Uh, they were able to access work without having to... Um, get male guardian approval, even if that wasn't necessarily codified, it was something that was common practice, but this really gave women this agency to make more of their own choices, register their children when they were uh, born, instead of having to have the male member of the family do that. Uh, they don't need permission to travel anymore, which was a very big thing, and they can be the head of their own household. So that used to be, uh, a you know, it's a family card. Uh, usually the head of the household was a man and the woman would be the dependent. She can be at the top of that family card now. So this was one of the massive changes. Another one, which really is um, in incredibly important for the workplace, was the work and anti-harassment laws that were put into place. So you would imagine that having uh, not worked in a mixed uh, gender environment, women would be very reluctant to start and men might be very reluctant to encourage their relatives to go into the workplace. So the anti-harassment law was put in place to kind of ameliorate some of those fears and tensions. Um, and it also, in, in doing the anti-harassment law and implementing the anti-harassment law, they also introduced... Um, a different labor uh, law, which removed different forms of discrimination. And this is just a quote from it. Citizens are equal with respect to the right to work without any discrimination on the basis of sex, disability, age, or any other form of discrimination. So there were a lot of policies that were put into place to really encourage workplaces to accommodate this new and diverse workforce. And finally, and this one is very important, especially in public spaces, uh, there were there was a new law issued from the Council of Ministers very early on uh, in 2016 uh, that um, prevented the 
you might call them mutawa, you might call them the morality police. There are lots of different ways of referring to them, but they used to be uh, very much present in public places and would police mixing of men and women together and what women and men were wearing. And they, that kind of was taken away from them. They were prevented from monitoring people in public, asking for ID cards, etc. So this, these three things really changed kind of what was allowed to happen in public places and in workplaces. Uh, before that, it was quite restricted. So these three, I think, are probably the most fundamental changes that happened um, in allowing social spaces to change and then workplaces to change as well. Then all of those vision programs we can talk about in a few minutes. So employment. Um, this is very big. There's a lot that's happened that's changed. Uh, Traditional transitions into employment were very much gendered, as they are in many places in the world and continue to be, but maybe a little bit more extreme in Saudi. So you had young men traditionally would go into government employment, government administration. It still is the case, but less so. Uh, defense, medicine, maybe family businesses, because that's quite common. Um, and then also maybe retail and service. Young women would go into education, medicine, or maybe some administration, or not work at all. So the transitions into employment today have changed quite a bit. There's a lot of changing patterns of work. Um, Saudi unemployment, for one, has been, it's the lowest that it's ever been, and it's close to the target within the vision. So the vision's target is by 2030 to have unemployment be at 7% for Saudis. It's now 8.3%. Um, and it is still high for young people, especially women. It's 27% for young women. So there's a lot more women seeking employment now and not necessarily finding it right away. But this number does really illustrate that there are many more job seekers in the market. Women's participation has now reached 36%, again, exceeding already the target uh, for the vision. So when we look at the education in a minute, this will not be surprising. Uh, increased employment in the private sector. So 94.1% uh, of unemployed Saudis who would like to, they would like to work in the private sector. They're looking for jobs, not only in the public sector anymore, they're still looking for jobs and they would happily take one in the private sector according to um, the uh, General Authority of Statistics and the numbers released by the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development. But public sector employment still dominates, even if it's decreasing. So 53.1% of Saudis still do work in the public sector. Uh, but there are higher wages um, and more favorable working conditions and laws uh, really did change some of these patterns. Saudis who were previously known to seek a job for life are moving around a lot more. Uh, you, this might pose some problems. So, you know, you're spending money on training and then you're losing your employees. These are some of the things that we hear in terms of whether or not retention is an issue. However, it does show that more Saudis are quitting jobs and taking new jobs than ever before as well. So they're confident that there are other opportunities in the labor market, which is something that wasn't necessarily the case in the past. Um, hiring of new workers is rapidly increasing and um, there are programs in place, Saudization programs, uh, to really uh, encourage employers to employ citizens, similar to other Gulf states as well. Uh, but in Saudi, it's enforced through a program known as Nidaqat, which ensures that firms hire a certain number of Saudis and it's color coded and you kind of get gain in um, kind of benefits based on your Nidaqat score. 
Uh, it's been modified to act as a monitoring tool as well. So it ensures that wages are paid on time to the correct person that's registered in that company. So some of the kind of indicators in the private sector were augmented in the past by ghost employment. This was something that was well documented. And I, uh, they like it's believed that today a lot of the, the shifting um, numbers really do show that the ghost employment is going away. And so the decreased employment, if there is any in the private sector, is more that you're actually measuring people who are in work instead of people who are registered to meet Saudization quotas, specifically women. But now that there's more opportunities for women, you have um, basically women that were maybe ghost employees looking for real work, and there are more opportunities for them. So they're getting, kind of joining that labor market. Um, there's also a lot of studies showing that there's a strong preference for remote work and hybrid arrangements. And there's there are programs in place from the government that are supporting this. So you can apply for funding to set up your home office if you need to. And one of the reasons that that was set up was specifically to allow for increased employment everywhere in the kingdom instead of just concentrated in the big cities uh, because the majority of the population do live but there is a stronger emphasis on work and productivity. So one of the things um, that I mentioned I would talk about a little bit more was kind of changes in the social welfare programs and social protection. Um, there are a lot of new strategies that are related to social safety nets um, that are, they've been adopted uh, the, or they have adopted what is called a life cycle risk framework to really identify gaps in existing programs and to adopt more comprehensive approaches to addressing low income or, or vulnerable individuals to really help minimize inclusion errors and ensure that the program beneficiaries are identified properly and are given opportunities to break out of cycles of vulnerability. Um, there may have been some limited uptake of these programs, but for they're available and they're growing in popularity and more and more people are aware of them. So there's these are a few of them. So Hafiz is a incentive-based program that's aimed at providing support and finding jobs, including by equipping beneficiaries with skills and resources. Um, SANID is an unemployment insurance scheme that's supposed to bridge that gap between when you lose a job and when you're looking for a new one. So again, these policies also do encourage people to look for more jobs. So instead of that job for life, you're encouraged to look for a job that's better suited for you. And that does, uh, you know, through through finding better fits, you, you do get better productivity in these private sector companies. And you also have the Citizens Account Program, which is an unconditional cash transfer program that provides support to Saudi citizens that, to mitigate impact of some of the structural economic reforms that have happened, um, such as you know, higher energy prices, VAT, um, and kind of the expatriate levy and other costs that have really made it more difficult for Saudis to meet some of their financial needs. Um, they're deposited directly into the accounts of citizens. And then you also have a, re a reformed Laman program. So that's your social welfare program, which is a conditional cash transfer program. It used to be um, based on uh, kind of your, your status, um, such as whether or not you were widowed or divorced, regardless of your income. And now it is more targeted to really address um, the needs of people who actually have low income and need the support in order to help them uh, kind of get out of that. Moving on to education. So transitions into education have changed again quite significantly in the 50s to the 80s 
you really, a lot of people basically were not educated or only educated to primary level. Um, it was very much administrative or agricultural. Uh, you had a lot of vocational training back then. And the first public schools and universities and international scholarships were established. So for the first time, you had people going abroad. Actually, that's not really the first time, but really in, in bigger numbers. And then in the 1980s to today, a lot has changed as well. So now you have 55% of secondary graduates actually enroll in bachelor's degree programs. So you're not stopping at that primary level. You're continuing on to university level. And in 2017, 66.75% of all students enrolled in university were in humanities, social science, or business administration. So this is actually pre-today, uh, pre-vision, because that's changed quite a bit. And I'm going to talk a lot about the different opportunities in education. Um, however, you also have, uh, you know, not all people are going into the specializations that they choose. And career guidance is something that we need to really enhance within the kingdom. Uh, because it's it's usually happening at the point when people exit education and are entering the labor market rather than incorporating it into the general education system. At the moment, you do have the majority of students in public schools, but you do have a growing number going into both private as well as international schools. This was not even possible for Saudi students in the past. They were they had to go through the national curriculum. Now they are able to go to international schools and experience different curricula if they can afford that. And there are scholarships for some of these students to do that as well. Uh, the majority of students, again, because of the population pyramid are in primary school, but most of them are progressing into um, at least secondary level, but most of them are, and over half of them are going into university. Uh, there are more than 29 government universities within the kingdom, and uh, there have been significant investments uh, to enhance university quality. And the, one of the biggest challenges is that the teacher profession is not necessarily held in high regard. So uh, there have been many different uh, initiatives to try and change this and also to change the quality of instruction. So in 2019, a professional education license was introduced uh, and that is meant to enhance the level and quality of teacher um, interaction with students. I'm going to skip over that just because I don't want to take too much time. But with the vision, a lot has changed in education. So the first and major thing didn't happen until 2021, where you had the launch of the Human Capabilities Development Program, which is the vision realization program that is meant to enhance education. It aims to develop citizens' capabilities, prepare them for future, and support them to seize opportunities. It really does kind of... Um, embrace that thriving economy objective uh, because it's really aligning education objectives with economic ones. Um, and there's there, that's, there's a lot of unpacking to do there, which we don't have a lot of time to do today. But they have a commitment to be ranked 45th in the World Bank's Human Capital Index by 2025. Um, the goal in this visual, vision realization program is to increase the number of Saudi universities that are ranked amongst the world's top 200 to six. Uh, and in 2022, the budget for education was 19.37% of the overall kingdom's budget. Uh, however, in the past, that's been up to 25%, uh, which is quite high in comparison to other OECD countries, which often spend 46% of their budget on education. The three core pillars are a resilient and strong education base, preparing for the future labor market locally and globally, and providing lifelong opportunities. Um, there's a refreshed scholarship abroad program. 
this has gone through a few iterations, but it's landed now on uh, a couple, four tracks. Uh, but some of the key changes are not everybody can get a scholarship to go abroad. Instead, a lot of that pre-prep is happening inside the kingdom in the education um, facilities that are there. So less people are going, but the ones that are going are getting acceptance and unconditional acceptance into universities before they're leaving. So, you know, I think one of the, the things that there are barriers to going abroad, language being one of them, because English um, is something that wasn't taught in schools <clears throat> in lower grades until more recently. However, they've widened the number of countries that people can go to as well. So English isn't necessarily the only requirement, but still the majority of students are going to um, the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, but they're focused on specializations that are in demand. It's prioritizing supposedly uh, what they're considering to be the best universities and the best programs. Uh, but it's also focusing on lifelong learning. There used to be a, a ceiling to when you could apply in terms of your age. And now you can apply at any time. You can also apply to specialize in more vocational tracks as well. And uh, you can apply all year round. You do not have to pass the Saudi standardized tests in order to get these scholarships abroad. You just have to get acceptance into those universities. And it doesn't have to be a continuation of your pre previous specialization, which used to be the rule. So if you were you know, um, a civil engineer and you wanted to shift gears and go into cinema, that wasn't something you could get funding for, but today it is. So there are a lot of things that you can do differently. And these are the four tracks. They're really aimed at labor market participation in ma on many levels, but they're also uh, expanding what you can study abroad as long as you're getting those unconditional um, offers from universities. And the specializations are much more diverse. So these, this is an idea of kind of what people are going to study abroad now. In the past, it was very much focused on STEM um, and very little humanities or social sciences. But now you have things like sociology, economics, and anthropology on there. But you also have sports management, tourism, uh, political science, international relations, and things that you wouldn't expect Saudi um, students to be studying abroad, uh, like right before the vision. And I'll go into the last part with family formation. Uh, basically, there's there have been changes and a lot of them are driven by the previous two areas that we looked at, um, employment as well as uh, education. Uh, the average age of marriage has increased significantly. The average number of children per family has decreased significantly. And so these are numbers from the latest census. So the average uh, family has 2.8 children. And houses, households do still continue to be more communal in nature. However, the census also showed that the majority of Saudis are living in apartments, um, in multi-story apartments, rather than in these communal homes. So it was also interesting, actually, with the census that 61% of the population are men and 39% are women. So there are many more men in, uh, and the majority of women or girls are young uh, as well. 68% of the population live in major cities, Riyadh, Mecca region, and the Eastern province. And the population um, forms 4.2 million families. The average family size is 4.8 members, and there are 8 million Saudi homes. 51% of them are those apartments that I just mentioned. Uh, they do spend a significant proportion of their income on rent and housing. So that is an area where there have been um, initiatives to encourage Saudis to um, 
purchase homes. There are programs in place with that kind of social welfare uh, program, but also for average Saudis, they can apply for loans uh, as well as grants for properties and for homes. The primary breadwinners of families still support an average of six dependents, though. So there is a lot of pressure on one-income households to support a significant amount of people, which is, again, one of the reasons why you're seeing more women entering the labor market. Um, all families do have access to health care, and over 37% have access to private health care because it's a requirement for the private sector to offer it <clears throat> to um, employees. Uh, and 94% report having good health. So just a little bit now, thinking about those things, contextualizing them in terms of that idea of opportunity structures. There are a lot of implications of new pull factors, right? Work opportunities have changed. The specializations have changed. There's more opportunities in diplomacy, culture, tourism. Uh, scholarship opportunities have changed what types of skills you're going to find in the labor market. Saudiization continues to support uh, opportunities and enhance them for Saudis within the labor market. So there should be more opportunities for Saudis to continue to pursue this type of education and then find work within companies. Women are highly incentivized to enter the labor market. There's more pressure on individuals to chart their own paths. Uh, whereas in the past, there was a lot of handholding and a lot of reliance on the state. There is so much more uh, responsibility that is given back to the individual but not without programs in place um, for many people if they want to access them or can figure out how. And funding for small and medium enterprises has created a lot of new opportunities for work. There have been several support programs offering transportation and childcare, especially to encourage women to work, but also support for all job seekers and many training initiatives and financial support uh, to set up different uh, businesses, small and medium enterprises, as well as home offices. There is an interest in many areas and support uh, looks different for different areas. So for instance, the Research Development and Innovation Authority just announced that many advancements in the kingdom's uh, performance have led to, for instance, at ranking number four globally in terms of uh, the commercial value of listed companies. But it's also then spending money and encouraging um, people to apply for grants for research um, uh, multi-year research projects, especially in the sciences. And then just yesterday, you had the Minister of Tourism announce the launch of a new hospitality and tourism school in Riyadh, which is costing $1 billion uh, to offer training and development in travel and tourism, uh, set to open in 2027 and open to students from around the world. But you also then have the Ministry of Communications and Information announcing that 48% of gamers in the kingdom are women. So there's a lot happening and a lot of different pulls in different directions that were not there before. And the vision really did change that landscape. This is just, I, I thought it was beautiful visually, but this was um, from a tweet from the Human Resource Development Fund and the Ministry of Culture. Uh, they've cooperated on enhancing the amount of support that private sector companies get to employ people in cultural uh, jobs. So this is just, there, there are 160 different specializations. Some of them that are on this list are film producer, film director, sculptor, visual artist, um, artist agent, so very interesting things. But if you are a private sector company and you're going to employ somebody in one of these arts and culture specializations, uh, the Human Resource Development Fund will now pay 60% of that uh, salary uh, as uh, for a limited time, but to really encourage people to employ people in the arts. 
And then changing pull factors. So, you know, this is thinking back to gender, thinking back to family structure. Women entering the labor market does lead to delayed marriage. So family sizes will most likely continue to decrease. Dual income households do, on the flip side, uh, kind of increase families' abilities to pay for housing and adjust for other higher living costs. But the family dynamics don't always support that. I mean, there's a conservative and traditional nature in society that's not going to change overnight, even with the vision and all of these vision realization programs. But while there are new opportunities, there are challenges um, that, you know, kind of ensure that these opportunities uh, align with everybody's vision of education, work and family. There's Those are very big challenges. And it will take a very long time for people to figure out how they want to navigate through those. Um, but there is, and I think that this is very important, more than ever, more choice. Whether or not those choices are available isn't necessarily um, clear, but they are bringing a lot of contradictions to light for a lot of people, I think. And so finally, just when thinking about opportunity structures and the theories that enable us to understand youth transitions and women's transitions and their life journeys, I can't help but observe that Saudis today are following a similar process that's happened in many, many other contexts of individualization. So that's a shift away kind of from those predetermined social positions that you were born into. And these, the, the process is now shaped more by the individual, not fully, but more by the individual than it has been in the past with many caveats and nuances, of course. And so I find Pierre Bourdieu's uh, habitus really helpful in understanding why this looks so different in this context than it does in other contexts. Uh, because habitus is that notion of reflexivity, that feedback loop. Um, our individual dispositions are a result of our interactions with the world around us. And the world is then shaped by our internalized and embodied experiences of that world itself. Uh, so it highlights that context is important and sometimes limiting. So I think of it, and I've said this before, um, this is kind of a conclusion that I've come to, is I think of it as a template, like the canvas uh, and the boundaries are those social boundaries that shape our opportunities. And rather than a blank slate, everybody is given a template and it's divided into shapes and sizes to color in. And everyone has a different set of colors and those colors kind of represent your cultural capital, your social capital, your financial abilities, your socioeconomic status, your gender, et cetera. And so everybody's gonna have different resources and the canvases will look different, but those social boundaries really are predetermined. But through many of these shifts that I kind of was talking about today, different people have increasing access to more resources, moving to cities, accessing training, scholarships, new jobs, new types of specializations. And therefore those boundaries of what is possible are also shifting. And I continue to do research and work with young people and women in the kingdom. So I'm constantly fascinated by the way these push and pull factors are reshaping spaces for individual agency and choice. But I'll stop here. And thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Hannah. I think this is an excellent presentation. And of course, the transformations in the kingdom are astounding. Um, and, you know, you mentioned some things that, you know, the figures, the changes, you know, I think it's nonstop. And, and in an interview for Fox News recently, the Crown Prince, Saudi Crown Prince said that this, there's no slowing down. In fact, things will go faster. 
And of course, uh, they are already preparing for the next vision uh, after Vision 2030. So I'd like to invite uh, our audience to put in the questions through the Zoom chat box. I think I already, I'm already seeing uh, some of them already on the chat box. But yes, please keep them coming. Um, I will, of course, uh, exercise the privilege of the moderator to ask the first question. And I think, you know, you, you've written and you've worked with youth, you worked with women. And one of the articles, interestingly, that you wrote is titled, Woman Without Wasta. And, and that struck me, you know, uh, that struck me because Wasta, as if for our audience uh, to know, is the connections, kind of the connections you need to know who the right person, I guess, you know, to, to navigate the social circ circle and social circuit. So now your, your, your article is titled Women Without Wasta, the Importance of Increasing Saudi Women's Leadership Role. So I think this is a pro problem across the Gulf states generally because of the fact they are very patriarchal in nature. And I wanted to hear your views, your findings from, from this piece. How have women started to navigate with all these transformations ongoing how have they started to navigate that social circuit now amid these changes and attaining those leadership positions that you are writing about yeah no thank you that's a really important question and you know i, I think that women are making new connections in the labor market and so they're creating their own wastas however the majority of decision making still at the top is definitely dominated by men. Therefore, not only are women going to hit uh, barriers when they're kind of considered for promotions into more decision-making positions, if it's happening organically, uh, but also women are excluded for some of that socialization that happens afterwards. And so if you don't have those spaces to communicate with other people in your organization who might be considering you on a social level, then they don't really know who you are. They see and hear about your work, but they don't know how you might react in tense situations, in social settings. Um, and, and I think that that's where one of the biggest problems still lies. But women then are creating their own communities, right? Where they're actually deciding that they don't necessarily have to rely on that promotion. They're going to break out from that, start their own company, and that is now more readily available to them. And as these, as you have more women going into the labor market, I think men are going to have that negotiation happening at home. I, I spoke to one young woman that I thought was, in, her response was incredibly inspirational because she said, we don't have an issue with women. We just need our men to grow up <laughs> and accept that we're, you know, we're here playing in the same playing field as they are. And we're not a threat. We need to do this together if we actually want to achieve anything. And I thought, you know, that was a really good way of thinking about it because the, the access to decision-making is difficult and it's continuing to happen by appointment rather than happening organically. And women I've spoken to have said that they've reached limits where they feel like they were ready to go to the next level, but nobody was offering that to them. And they had to step back and find new places to work. Mm. As that churn happens, you're gonna have 
people accepting women in these places being the qualified, the most qualified person. And that's what it really comes down to. It, it needs to be putting the right people in the right places to make the decisions, but also to give them places at the table to represent those voices uh, that have slightly different struggles, most likely on a daily basis. Thank you, Hannah. I think you answered another of the question in my head about the challenges in terms of, of gender roles and gender segregation and along those lines. But I'd like to ask one more question before I start tackling the questions that have come in through the chat. My other question is uh, with reference to the changes that you talked about in terms of education, the opportunities there are for the youth, the students, uh, that it's not a one-track kind of route because now you are it's pretty diversified. You can choose things like film studies and not just things that are traditionally supposed to be money-making in that way. So I want to ask, what are the perceptions of the Western Academy uh, and the Asian and Asian tertiary institutions? Because you said that some of the scholarships, you know, they, they try to push uh, youth to, to study at the top universities in the world. And some of them are here in Asia. So I wanted to know, uh, what are the perceptions on the ground? I think that people are really excited about the new opportunities because they weren't there before, right? It was very difficult to go study abroad in China. It wasn't an option. It was very difficult to go to um, study languages in, or study university in a place like Spain where you would need to speak Spanish, but these are all there. And so I think people are really interested in exploring all the different opportunities that are there. And I think there's a huge pull and a draw to go to Asian countries, actually. I think that people are very excited about that opportunity, particularly in a country where they can speak the language. So most Saudis do have better English skills than any other language. Um, but, you know, Chinese has been introduced into the curriculum, so more Saudis are going to um, embrace those opportunities as they go through this education system and, and, and learn different languages, right? So it's Mandarin, actually, so I don't know that they would, uh, which, I, you know, I think it, it's really interesting thinking about then where that will lead them. Uh, however, I, I think there's still a lot of cultural kind of uh, influence from the United States in the kingdom that more people are, you know, still comfortable with that. Their parents, if studied abroad, would likely have gone to the United States and would probably encourage their children to go to the United States. So you do have some of that social reproduction happening. Uh, but for people that are getting on these programs for the first time, there's a lot of embracing kind of the new opportunities and, and exploring if they can get in. Right. That's that's yeah. that's the key is it's kind of developing that capital earlier in the phase of kind of the li their lives when they're going through the education system to enable them to embrace those opportunities. Uh, otherwise, you know, they're there, but it would be very difficult for lots of people to get them. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. And I like the fact that I, it slipped my mind that I forgot to mention how I appreciated that you mentioned Pierre Bourdieu's Habitus and how this is a reproducing, you know, kind of disposition, you know, because of the environment and how you interact with the environment and the policies that are rolled out. And because that's because in my previous presentation, two weeks back, I mentioned social capital and cultural capital. And if this is the kind of generation they are trying to cultivate, you know, you, you'll have different a different mental psyche along the way, down the line. So let us now turn to the questions from the floor, because I'm seeing a number already and, and very important ones as well. Uh, we have the first one from Aisha, my colleague, Dr. Aisha Sarihi. And she's asking, 
you know, in terms of that public and private sector distinction, is the payment of the private sector competitive enough to attract Saudi employment, which has traditionally been concentrated in the public sector? Yeah, I think that's a, a really important question and something that people talk about a lot, uh, especially today. So it depends on what level of employment. If you're at entry level, likely private sector uh, companies can compete with the salaries. But if you're at a more executive level and you're you know, in, in, in a more senior uh, position or stage of your employment, then at the moment, the public sector salaries are very, very cushy and very appealing. Um, and that's because of these ambitious vision realization programs and the way these ministries uh, are really trying to achieve some of these key performance indicators. So, you know, I think that at the moment, employment is very, very lucrative in the public sector at a certain level, not necessarily at entry level, but what the government is trying to do then is to really encourage this uh, small and medium enterprise growth through opportunities to start your own company. So instead of thinking about salaries that you're getting paid, it's thinking about how you're going to create a difference and, you know, and contribute to employment opportunities that are there for everybody. Thanks, Hannah. The next question is about a woman's role in combating climate change. And that's from Sumeya uh, in the audience. And she asks if you know, is there any systemic change to push women uh, into this sector? And, and, and what are the efforts that have been rolled out so far? So it's a tricky sector, obviously, within the kingdom. Um, you know, there has been a shift in the narrative from thinking about uh, oil and gas to thinking about energy. And that means that there is a discussion of renewables. There is a discussion of getting women into these fields. There are some incredible women that are working in different research agencies within the kingdom that, you know, are slowly um, making a difference in this area. But I think what's important to note is one way that the, the country is really encouraging a change in the way people think about combating climate change and thinking about sustainability is through private sector um, policies related to ESG and uh, and sustainability reporting. So the Capital Markets Authority is likely to make this compulsory for publicly listed companies soon. And traditionally, people that worked in ESG were women because they were really ESG for a long time and CSR and companies was focusing on the charity sector. So they're expanding their expertise now into the environmental sector as well. And I think that because of where women were placed within these organizations, uh, you will see more women than being a part of, especially in the private sector, changing the way people think about energy and sustainability and environmental impact of uh, energy resources. Uh, so I think that's you know one area where it's really interesting to watch. Thanks, Hannah. Again, uh, we move on to the next question, and I think that's that's also important because you talked about uh, changes to the personal status law. You talk about the changes to the morality police, and these examples and anecdotes that you had. Uh, Asif, uh, my colleague, Dr. Asif Shuja, a senior research fellow here. He is asking about, you know, the, the role of religion, because this has, of course, traditionally dominated the politics within the kingdom. And he asked, could you please share with us the fundamental changes being carried out in that realm by Saudi authorities? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that in all the details that I'm sure uh, a lot of people would like me to. But what I can say is that religion still plays a very central role in most people's lives. And it hasn't really, I mean, people are looking at things like the uh, entertainment authority and things like the Riyadh season and all of these new, um, you know, kind of seasons that are happening across the kingdom and thinking that, you know, that's all that people do now. But these are events that happen and they're promoted heavily and marketed heavily globally to get people to come for tourism purposes to the kingdom. But on the in the day-to-day lives of most Saudis, people still find religion to be a very important part of their lives. So, you know, um, mosques are still there and people still go to them. Uh, religion is still taught extensively within schools. Uh, Mecca is still in Saudi Arabia and people continuously go there for Umrah and Hajj and it's not that hasn't changed and one of the biggest um, kind of changes I think is is what you're you're thinking about are little things that look big because of marketing but the day-to-day lives are still very much influenced by uh, people's Islamic heritage and belief system Globally and throughout the Arab world, uh, there is a declining religiosity level amongst young people. Uh, However, I don't necessarily think that the data shows that that's happening as much within the kingdom. But people are, are, I think, visually you're seeing things that look really different. So you think that it's all gone away, but I don't necessarily think that it's gone away, you know, at the level that you would expect. I think it's very much central to most people's lives. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, we have a couple of questions coming in on the role of women, especially in uh, government positions and in the industry. Let me try to group this together. I'll take part one first. Part one of the of these two questions. Uh, the first part is from Margaret Leung, who is an MBA student at NUS. And she says she's applying for consulting jobs in Riyadh after graduating. So she's curious about which industry you would see as having a more female presence and if you could share the situation for working mothers and raising young kids in the kingdom that's a lot (laughs) but let me see how i can tackle this okay so which industries i think at the moment women are actually everywhere and so it's it's incredible to think that, you know, uh, in the past, maybe you would have seen women concentrated only in education and medicine. But now, really, uh, th- there's every company is encouraged to hire women and therefore you have women in all industries and um, in- including, you know, some of those traditionally male engineering and oil and gas spaces. Uh, so I think that. Um, all industries are are shifting in that direction. What it's like for women um, and small children in the kingdom, I think one thing that we don't stress enough is how safe the kingdom is. So it's one of the things that uh, might be quite different from Western contexts, maybe similar to Singapore. You'd feel comfortable walking outside. You feel comfortable and safe. And it's a very wholesome environment in that way. Uh, very family oriented still, even if there is some shifting patterns, uh, it's very, very family oriented. And I think that the support networks that have been put into place to encourage women to go to work are really helpful. So companies are opening nurseries if they're big enough or supporting female um, employees uh, expenses at 
available nurseries. You have transportation support for uh, for women, which is helping them kind of transport their children first to school or nursery and then uh, to work and, and back and forth. And now with women being able to drive, which I don't know if I even mentioned that, um, you can, you can, you know, you don't have to rely on transportation from somebody else, which was a big thing because public transportation is, is, is not very, uh, well connected and is, you know, still a work in progress in most parts of the kingdom. But I would say, you know, it's a great place. It was a great place for me to grow up in the 80s pre-Vision 2030. And so I think it's still a great place to live uh, with a family. Thanks, Anna. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the level of public safety because I think people should really visit the region, not just Saudi Arabia, to see the level of public safety. It's not just in Riyadh, but also in Doha, Abu Dhabi, you know, across the Gulf. Um, so this is a call to, to the audience. If you haven't already done so, yeah, you should. Um we have another question from my colleague, which is the part two of, of women, uh, you know, in the workforce. Uh, it's from my colleague, John Lu Saman. And I'll just read out his question because he gives uh, the context of a movie a Saudi, Saudi, by a Saudi director, Haifa Mansur, uh, called The Perfect Candidate. It's about a young Saudi woman running for city council that reflected the growing expectations for women in politics. So could you discuss the evolution of women within government positions, local or national, in Saudi Arabia and what we should expect in the years to come? Yes, absolutely. So I think Haifa's uh, movie really did highlight that it's not an easy thing to do, right? Getting into politics for the first time is very difficult when it was a space that was heavily male dominated. And um, those local councils don't exist anymore. There's been a restructuring of the way um, local uh, councils work. So you will see women running for positions in chambers of commerce and within the private sector a lot more than you would see them running for positions in kind of public sector uh, councils. Where you do see women's roles increasing in government um, is by appointment into ministry deputyships, into foreign um, representation. So we have several women that are ambassadors to the kingdom across the world. Uh, that's one of the areas where you've seen significant growth and support for women going into these positions. Uh, women uh, have been appointed as cultural attaches across uh, different um, countries where you have uh, specific relationships, especially when you have a large body of students in those countries, uh, because the cultural um, uh, attaches are responsible for students studying abroad, etc. It, it, it's it's still way less than it needs to be in terms of how many women are in government. And we still don't have a woman as a minister in any of our ministries. So there's room for improvement, I would say. Uh, of course, again, at the end of the day, you'll you'll hear most Saudis pushing back and saying that we need to make sure that these people are qualified. Uh, I think that increasing the number of women in these positions uh, would help boost uh, other women's qualifications because you get then get these role models who are uh, encouraging other women to enter these spaces and find a safe place there for themselves. And another area where you're seeing increased women participation is in, again, uh, private sector boards uh, and even publicly listed companies. Boards now are pushing really hard, again, because of ESG, to get women uh, on their boards. So, you know, there's there's a growing space for women in decision-making as a whole. 
but there's a lot of, and there's been significant progress. Again, I always feel like we have to go back to where we were a few years back and where we were 50 years ago to realize how different it is today. Uh, but there's room for improvement always. Yep. Thanks, Anna. I think change has come a long way. I think if you look back and you compare the last few decades, um, and you talked about, you know, women in this new found positions in the workforce. And I think I'm going to again group this these questions together because they talk about social cohesion and 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 it's related to your response earlier because you know you're saying that the the number of women in the workforce has increased and so does that you know challenge create a new challenge for traditional social cohesion or ideas of traditional social cohesion um for example and and one of the questions here states that will it increase in will, will it result in increasing rates of divorce for example so that kind of cohesion, you know, generally across society and also within the family? I mean, probably. <laughs> yes, is the answer, the short answer. So I was actually looking for a stat, an updated stat from the census on divorce rates, and I couldn't find one. It hasn't been listed as uh, one of the stats that's been released. But, you know, there have been things written about increasing rates of divorce um, for the past 15 years in Saudi Arabia. So I think that, you know, because divorce is something that is available to people, it is something that happens. And therefore, you're going to have uh, challenges when you have changes. You have women that are, you know, living independently for the first time, uh, moving to cities to to live independently. So, you know, your standards will change in terms of what you expect, uh, levels of autonomy within a family unit and levels of support that you get from your partner in a family unit 100% after having lived on your own. Because in the past, that was very, very rare. You would have everybody living in a family unit always, even, you know, young men and young women would live with their families until they got married and then they would move into a new family unit, usually an extension of the traditional one. So there will be pressures on these structures, 100% and challenges uh, with more people living abroad alone for a while and coming back with more people living independently and new, you know, moving to bigger cities to work uh, for extended periods of time before getting married, it's going to change the way things um, have traditionally worked for sure, which is kind of what we were talking about, right? This shifting social boundaries of what's acceptable, what's what's um, uh, common and what's not. And it's a space to watch to really understand that. And I think for me, one of the most important things is that we continue to do as much social science research as possible to really measure these changes. So we can intervene and mitigate if things are, um, you know, not going in the best direction. I think that's very important. Um, I, I don't think that we've stressed that aspect of development enough, uh, but more and more people again are going abroad and studying inside the country to become anthropologists, social scientists, economists. And that's something that we really need in order to track what's happening and how these changes are playing out. Yeah. Thank you, Hannah. And since we are still on the topic of social fabric, you know, um, there is a question on tribalism and tribal ties. Do they still play a role in society? I think that's also an interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, definitely. And they will continue to play a role. I don't think that that is something that's going to go away. Same as, you know, religion, it's not going away. It's very, very deeply embedded in society. Where it might be changing um, is where you would think about kind of, again, employment patterns. So people are 
more responsible for their own development now in order to gain the qualifications that they need to enter the labor market. And there's there's fierce competition. Uh, and in the past, it was really relying again on your wasta, who often was an extension of your family through tribal relationships. Um, not to say that other people weren't getting jobs because of their qualifications uh, and and because they were the right person for the right job and had the credibility, but there was more of that. Um, moving things into e-government, moving things onto online platforms to apply for scholarships, to apply for university places, that all weakens the negative aspects of tribalism and tribal uh, connections and strengthens kind of the, the kind of individual access that you um have to certain to certain types of employment and education but they still play a big role because you can still circumvent those and it's still very much alive and thriving within the kingdom so i you know it's again it's a big factor when thinking about where those social boundaries are and how strong those social structures might be uh to allow for space and agency and movement beyond them it, tribal relationships is a huge part of that and and that's again what makes the context different to other contexts having that historical um kind of element of society be so present and just to comment on that one step further if, if you look at other gulf states uh, that plays a really big role, again, in women's progression in politics and women's progression in different positions. It's played a big role in Kuwait and Qatar recently. And I don't necessarily think that it's going to be that much different. The big difference in Saudi is the geographical space and being able to move around the kingdom um, means that you might be able to kind of really pull yourself out of uh, some of that traditional space and find yourself in a place where people don't really know much about your tribe or your connections or your affiliations. And therefore, you're, it's on you uh, to chart those those kind of paths for yourself. Thanks again, Hannah. Um, I think let us move to another set of questions which revolve around youth. And I think these are all important questions on, on, on many levels. Uh, some are related to opportunities, other generational kind of thinking kind of questions, and some of them are on education. So let's start with the ones on, on education. Uh, and this question here says, you pointed out a flurry of government policies and in in incentives to support youth educational training. But are the youth in the kingdom ready to benefit from these, these incentives? And do they have the foundation to do so? No, that's a really important question. Some yes and some no. I think that if you look at uptake of some of these uh, programs, they're patchy. You know, not everybody is embracing all of these programs because there are other life pressures and people do make choices about education very pragmatically. So I might not pursue this because in order to pursue this, I have to move or in order to pursue this, I won't be able to support my family for this many years and they need me right now. And things like that, you know, the normal kind of life course pressures that young people have. So a lot of people don't necessarily have access to them and can't pursue them as much. Uh, as other people can. However, I think what's important to think about is that they are there uh, and they're being modified frequently. So they may be started out as what decision makers believed young people needed. And then, you know, 
when they saw the uptake was limited, there were tweaks here and there, and they're continuously evolving. So I think that's one area. Then you also have the the you know the general education systems. So there's been a lot of changes in the general education system to the curriculum, to pedagogy, to teacher training and teacher qualifications. And that's really helpful when you think about whether or not young people are primed to, to you know, uptake some of these opportunities. But there's still room for development there, because just like most parts of the Arab world, uh, education does remain very much traditional um, kind of uh, teacher students instead of a teacher as facilitator, but more the teachers in charge of the classroom and giving the students the information. With additional education technology being integrated, and especially after people have kind of relaxed uh, their reservations about education technology after COVID, you do have some more um, kind of, I guess I would say engagement from students, but there are still barriers to that because the teachers that have been in the system have been in the system for a very long time and aren't necessarily ready to change the way they teach uh, or have the skills to do that, which takes a very long time. So I guess the answer is education is a space where we could see a lot more development, but it's a space where the, it's changing globally and the demands uh, in the labor market often dictate what happens in the classroom, but I think that we really need to focus on developing kind of holistic uh, young people who are ready and agile to change with all of the new demands that are going to happen with the changes of the future of work and AI and, and digital economy and all of that. But it's an area where Saudi is really focusing on, you know, kind of the digital aspects of things. So hopefully that will trickle into classrooms more yeah. and more. Yeah, and uh, amid this uh, push for a holistic curriculum and education system, maybe I'll just slot in one of my questions because I took down a point which, from your slides, that says that you know religious education constitutes four point one percent. I think uh, I guess youth are engaging in religious education, four point one percent of them. So how important is religious education in the kingdom today still? Um, and that's because I'm asking because, you know, Saudi Arabia has all along been the custodian of the two holy mosques. And, and when you look back and what are the youth perceptions, what are the local perceptions of religious education today? Yeah, so I think with that stat specifically, I was referring to the, there's, you know, kind of your general education schools. And then you had a branch of schools where they focus more heavily on memorizing the Quran uh, and teaching religion. But that's not to say that religion isn't a big part of general education as well. So it still does play a central role. Uh, and students, you know, are taught uh, the same uh, religious curricula that they were taught before. It's just been repackaged and redesigned. And so it's slightly different. You would think that maybe there are less subjects, but they're all in there. They're just in, in, taught in kind of different levels, uh, as well as a different time allocation to it. But it's still a very, very big part of general education for all students, including students, Saudi students that go to international and private schools. That curriculum comes from the Ministry of Education. Um, so I think that's the second part, but I don't remember the first I, that, was that your question? Yeah, yeah, you did answer okay. my question. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I think the next question is still on youth, I guess, is on the entertainment and sports sectors because you have Kedia and you have the Crown Prince saying that he wants to attain the target of 
1.5% uh, of contribution by sport to the GDP. So can you tell us how youth are supporting these areas, entertainment and sport sectors? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the youth and it was young women that we were talking about are, you know, huge in the gaming industry. And so the esports sector is something that's really big. Uh, and that's part of the entertainment kind of development that's happening. Esports has grown significantly and it's continuing to grow. And then in terms of just sports, so I was speaking to a young cousin yesterday who told me that she stopped following the UK Premier League and is starting to just follow the Saudi league because it's finally exciting and and these teams that we all know and supported when we were younger are exciting to watch today and so i think that there's a lot more consumption of sports in general now because there's been a huge shakeup plus you have so many new sports commissions that are popping up and you have saudis participating in the olympics for the first time and so you have you know you have your saudi rugby uh, commission, or I'm, I'm not sure what the actual like affiliation of the group is, but there's rugby, there's fencing, there's um, a paddle is huge. And you can see like so many uh, kind of sports facilities where people can go play these sports indoors now, especially to accommodate for, uh, you know, the weather and all of that. But there's a lot of kind of focus on being active uh, as well as this focus on being competitive. And if anything that the vision has done, it has made Saudis incredibly competitive. And that sports is a really good place to channel that competition spirit. Thanks, Hannah. And I think the last question of that set of uh, questions related to the youth, I think it's the mindset, the generational kind of mindset. And, and there's one question from the floor, which, which says, um, what do you think about the youth uh, mindset at, about the possible normalization with Israel? I think that's a really good question. And I don't really know how young people feel about it. But I can tell you that I think the majority of Saudis, um, okay, well, the majority of Saudis are young, but most Saudis uh, really do embrace the foreign policy of the kingdom, which is until there is a d dignified kind of status for Palestinians, that normalization shouldn't really be what we're prioritizing. So I think for my generation, it was quite different. Most of my teachers were Palestinian. I had a lot of friends, you know, who were, were, were from Palestine. And uh, with Saudization of the education system, Saudi students were less exposed to that kind of diversity within their classrooms and within the education system. And so the Palestinian um kind of question wasn't as present in their lives. And the way we, you know, the way we talked about it was quite different uh, when I was growing up. And so I think young people probably have a different view than my own because of, I, I have a much more emotional relationship to it than they did because of the way I was taught and who I was taught by. However, I do think that the foreign policy is, is quite clear. And I think that young people are very, very much on board with leadership decisions. And so I think that, you know, the narrative will shift with the shifting of the foreign policy itself. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, so we move on now into about the, um, the physical landscape or residential landscape, I guess, so to speak. And I recall that uh, your colleague, Mark Thompson, uh, we hosted him for a book talk, I think a couple of years back on when the, his book was released. And 
And Mark's book talked about the lack of affordable housing at that time. You know, uh, I think things have changed now. And, and I think this is the reason why I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, be, amid this construction boom that we are seeing now in Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, are, is there, are there projects catered specifically for residential housing? Because you, you talked about Saudis having a preference today for multi-story apartments and not the communal homes and i think that that's a phenomenon that has changed across the gulf as well a communal living kind of thing the fridge for example in, in kuwait has, has changed along the way so in that in you know in that line of thought you know is the government yeah. meeting the needs of housing you know that that demand for housing and, and you know from the people no absolutely so first i don't know that it's a preference that saudis have for uh kind of moving away from communal, I think that that does have to do with affordability as well. However, I do think that the government has made incredible strides in that area specifically. So um, if you look at kind of the national transformation programs uh, or, or program and then kind of the KPIs under it, and you look specifically at the Ministry of Housing and what they're doing there, uh, they've, they've changed uh, the way people can access housing and housing loans significantly so that's it's increased it uh, people's ability to afford housing however you know as we mentioned you know it's still a big proportion of what people are spending their salaries on uh, so it, it's it's still a challenge however i think it's important to note that everybody is housed right mm. so you really don't see homelessness um as, a, as an issue anywhere in the kingdom and you still have a lot of that communal living happening in rural parts of the kingdom, which again, very few Saudis live in those parts. It's you know 80% or over 80% live in urban spaces. However, the communal aspect is still very much present in more rural parts of the kingdom. And even when people live in apartments, they're oftentimes living close to their families. So I think, I think um, you do still have a preference for living close to the family if you can, uh, but affordability is still a bit of a barrier. And there, that's been one of the main things that the vision has been focusing on because it is so important in order to ensure that, you know, people can continue to, um, you know, escape kind of these cycles of vulnerability if they're, if they're there at all. Thanks, Hannah. Since you talked about the vision, and I think everything loops back to the vision, uh, I'd like to wrap up today's fascinating discussion with, with a broad question. Uh, what are your thoughts on the expected, expected changes with the next vision when it, when it will be announced? Because the Crown Prince obviously said during the interview with Fox News that we'll be announcing a new vision by 20, 2027 or 2028. So what can we expect in terms of opportunities for youth and women in the years ahead? I think it's important to contextualize where we are and who, who are our young people today. So if we are saying that over 60% are under 30 and this vision has already been in place since 2016, we're kind of at the midpoint really before we arrive at 2030. Young people today who are you know, starting to enter secondary education, they're starting to go into university education don't remember Saudi before the vision, right? And the ones that are going to be consuming whatever is on offer in the new vision uh, are going to be very different uh, from the generation that's here today. They're going to have had a very different experience in education, a very different experience of families. They're gonna have a different experience of work and a different outlook on what work is available. So I think that, 
thinking about who, you know, the vision is about developing Saudi Arabia for Saudis. Um, and obviously encouraging people to come and experience that. But it really is about developing Saudi for Saudis. It's about making sure that there is uh, a really good livelihood for Saudis and choices for them to make. That's what the vision is, uh, you know, th that's what these ambitions are about. And I think that you need to think about who those Saudis are going to be in the second iteration uh, of development. And so, you know, I think more of the same, but probably bigger. So the way that these new announcements kind of blow your mind, I think there's going to be more of that. But I really hope and what I would love to see is more of these grants for research, more expansion of studying how this, these changes are playing out. So we can really make sure that that it's a vision for and by the people in Saudi Arabia, because I don't necessarily think that this vision was necessarily drawn by Saudis. And I think the second vision will be very much drawn by Saudis for what their needs are. Thank you, Hannah. This has been a very refreshing conversation. Of course, thank you also for the presentation. And I would like to thank our audience for putting in all the questions. I think very important questions, very relevant ones. So thank you for that. Hannah, thanks again. Um, and I think next week we'll be welcoming Dr. Noshari uh, Saad from the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies to talk about uh, religion and political Islam across the Middle East and Southeast Asia. So once again, let me conclude today's session by thanking Hannah, Dr. Hannah Moabed, for joining us today and giving us a wonderful presentation and answering all our questions very patiently. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.